Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and NHS Somerset Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And in fact, Peter, our guest for the today as well. We have a title of Borderline Personality Disorder, What is Normal? So tell us how you become interested in this topic. Well, I think we've, we've both in our careers, Andrew, seen lots of patients who got borderline personality disorder. And they're a very challenging group of patients, aren't they? They uh, The nature of the condition is such that it makes it very difficult to uh, to care for people, to help them, to maintain a professional distance. So I became interested in that. And I also feel it's one of those terms that is a bit of a dustbin diagnosis. And, you know, if you're labelled with having something wrong with your personality, what, what can you do with that? Where can you go with that? And then you're told it's only borderline, which sounds as though it, it's fairly mild, which, as we know, one in 10 of people with BPD uh, complete suicide is clearly not the case. So I, I'm on a bit of a a mission, I suppose, to destigmatize personality disorder and and to try and make people kinder towards people who've got this really awful condition to live with that wrecks your life or can do. That's really helpful. And before we go into the detail of that, one of the things that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years is, very pleasingly, the destigmatization of mental illness, whereas 30 or 40 years ago, depression, severe depression, and, and, and let alone other things, were, were almost swept under the carpet. Uh, and certainly two or three generations ago, families would would not see their loved ones again after they had gone into one of the big mental institutions. So things have moved a long way. Um, we have the the DSM um, um, from America, the the um, big dictionary of of um, of mental condition mental health conditions, and it seems to expand with every edition. So I wonder, I worry that alongside the destigmatization of mental illness, there's been a has, do you think there has been a a medicalization of normal distress? I do. And I have to say here that I'm speaking in a personal capacity and other people may violently disagree with this. But yes, I think to a large extent, we've been driven by uh, drug companies looking for, for ways to place their drugs. So they want to medicalize things. And for us as individuals, it's often easier to have a label for our distress because that makes it easier to deal with and it it makes it somebody else's problem to to sort out as well and i i think definitely borderline personality disorder is is one of those conditions although i'm not suggesting it's not in any way a real and very very distressing thing to happen but i think in other areas absolutely i agree that medicalizing distress is is something that we should push against and in our own you know in somerset locally as you know we've moved away from the medicalization of people with distress and and offered them things like peer support and uh social support and, and that sort of thing that will will often help put them right but i'm aware my my point of view may be a bit controversial andrew what do you want to put your head on the block and, and say where you stand on this? I think I think you put some very interesting points, uh, Peter. I think as doctors, we all want to help um, 
our patients. Um, having an accurate um, label or diagnosis may be helpful um, if it leads us to effective, appropriate treatment. Um, but my approach to treatment for everything would be a sort of a farmer's approach, not a pharmacological approach, but a farmer's approach, which is to get the environment right, um, strengthen the personality or strengthen the person, strengthen the, the animal, the individual, the organism, and then call in the vet as the last, not as a last ditch thing, but uh, late on in the process. So the Somerset approach of trying to help people live well uh, using peer support uh, and skills and Somerset Recovery College and, and other approaches uh, to help us be better in ourselves, then one hopes that actual treatment, as it were, for a particular condition is, is less challenging. Does that sound a bit yes. idealistic? No, I think that's absolutely spot on. And a, a spoiler alert for for uh, borderline personality disorder, which I think I'll, I'll call BPD in future, although I'd rather call it emotional dysregulation because I think that describes it better, um, is that there is effective treatment for BPD, but it's it's not medication, it's talking therapism. Maybe we can go into that in a bit more detail later. Well, we certainly will, Peter, because having set the scene... What are personality disorders, please? And what are borderline personality disorders? Okay. So uh, you're right about DSM. I think that lists 10 different uh, personality disorders, but they they basically fall into three basic groups. Uh, there's the, uh, the, the suspicious group A personality disorders. There's the um, emotional group B personality disorders, and that's the one that... Uh, that includes borderline personality disorder, uh, otherwise known as emotionally unstable personality disorder. And then group C are the anxious. So that's avoidant or dependent personality disorder. So those are the those are the three basic groups. And we know a little bit about what brings them on. We know that there's a genetic component to them, for instance, uh, and particularly with BPD, we know that a very high proportion of people with BPD have suffered some sort of trauma in childhood, uh, whether that's abuse, neglect um, or, or other trauma. And that seems to cause long lasting damage in the brain that makes it very difficult to deal with emotions and feelings later on in life. Interesting. And we'll come back to that if we may. But what sort of symptoms might we have with BPD? So the main thing um, is this inability to regulate emotions. So uh, people will go highs and lows. And uh, again, it's not borderline. It, it's, it's where you go from uh, sort of extremes of emotion. Uh, the second thing is that you can have disturbed patterns of, of thinking or perception. Uh, so you can see the world in a, a way that is distorted. You also tend to get impulsive behavior, and, and that can cause a lot of problems. Um, so people may get into inappropriate relationships, uh, may do dangerous things, may put themselves at risk through through that. Um, and then the, the last of the, the four main symptoms are intense but unstable relationships with others. And quite a lot of people in the public eye have personality disorder and they tend to be pilloried in the in the press they tend to be people like say amy winehouse who is thought to have had 
borderline personality disorder, who who had very self-destructive behavior. But a lot of that behavior is driven by trying to normalize emotions. So people will self-medicate with drink or drugs uh, in order to try and damp down this intensity of feeling. So people do what works, and that may be self-medication, uh, or it may be um, dis distressing or difficult patterns of behaviour, but that's a symptom that they hurt inside, that there's something not quite right inside that that may have been may not have been processed. Absolutely. And, and I think that's something that is very helpful for friends or relatives or, or professionals who come in contact with people with BPD to recognise that, A, often they are victims and they are showing these behaviours as a result of damage they sustained uh, as children, and, B, that these behaviours that are, are often very challenging you know, people can be difficult to live with if they've got BPD because of the intensity of the feelings. But again, if those around them can realise that it's a sign of inner distress, then that hopefully will will help us be more empathic uh, towards people going through what's an incredibly difficult thing to experience. Very interesting. I suppose we put it in the title, but what is normal? Do do not many of us, sorry, let me put this slightly differently. Um, do many of us actually have traits a bit like this sometimes? Are many of us emotionally unstable sometimes or have perpetual, uh, perceptual distortions or cognitive distortions? I think we all do, don't we? Yes. And unlike, say, uh, autism, it's not thought of as being a, a spectrum, but I'm, I'm sure it is. And I'm sure a lot of people that we see in our day-to-day -day life have a degree of personality disorder that makes, for instance, them find difficulty in sustaining relationships. Um, and, and that is something that is is pretty much a, a normal thing, isn't it? I think we all have uh, feelings of, of inadequacy or difficulty dealing with emotions, impulsive behaviour from time to time. Um, yes, this is a, a normal thing. And again, I think realising that it's a it's not something that's completely left field and out there. It's within all of us, but exaggerated because of those early traumas and genetic makeups can allow people to be more empathic. Interesting. Um, may I share a personal reflection a moment? Mm. Mm. So I, I do a lot of thinking when I'm driving, and it occurred to me um, recently that I, I occasionally, many of us do, I occasionally might feel, if I feel criticised, sometimes I may have a slightly larger, my wife would probably say disproportionately larger, reaction. And when when we have a disproportionate reaction to a minor issue, what's happening generally for most of us, is that a hot button is being touched of something from the deep past, which, and I don't know whether it's to do with the amygdala or the other parts of the limbic system, system, but we fire off rapidly because we're reprocessing something. And I was reflecting on this as I was on a drive, and I, I do love a long drive as a, through the countryside that we have in, in Somerset and Devon as a, as, a, as a place to reflect. And it suddenly struck me that this was a reaction I had had when I didn't want to go to boarding school and I was being criticised for being a silly little boy or something like that. 
And suddenly I was able to, over the period of the next half hour or so, reflecting on this, it was all unpacked and I'm, I didn't relive any traumas uh, and I didn't have any therapist with me, but it, it was almost as though a process of, of undoing those issues has gone. And so that feeling of unfair criticism um, is not affecting me now. Very curious. And we talked in our uh, assertiveness podcast, didn't we, about the, the long shadows of the past and how feelings that, that are evoked in childhood can stay with us and be difficult to, uh, to, to eradicate. I'm thinking of another example, Matthew Perry, I don't think had a formal diagnosis of BPD, but he had many of those features where he'd had a, a difficult childhood. And the only way he could get his mother's attention, apparently, was by being funny, which is what took him into the, the field he did. But then he had desperate attachment issues and was convinced he was going to be dumped. So would dump all his partners before they could dump him and uh, very self-destructive and of course self-medicated uh, with drugs which which eventually contributed to his his death sadly um, but functioned incredibly well in spite of this inner turmoil that he felt. So it may be part of the human condition that we all carry baggage which we either have processed or we haven't processed and maybe um, some of the people with personality disorders particularly the borderline ones not not the not the psychopathic ones the the severe ones or the the severe narcissism but the the borderline ones actually it's somebody who's hurting uh, and who hasn't got a good mechanism uh, of resolving that hurt without it becoming problematical yes and it looks as though there are these critical phases in development where we learn different skills and if if at that critical stage we don't learn to process emotions uh, because we're we're being rejected or having some other trauma, it's very difficult to acquire that in adult life. And there are actually actually physical changes. You mentioned the amygdala, so they've they've shown changes in the amygdala and changes in neurotransmitters uh, in people with BPD. Uh, it's not to say it's impossible, but it it takes an, a lot of hard work to to learn these things that we didn't learn at a time when when most other people do interesting and there obviously is a sort of spectrum across it because there are so many different uh, categories uh, and types in the dsm um does neurodiversity come into this or is this something completely different again it's different not a huge overlap with that but a lot of overlap with a lot of other uh, mental health conditions and and you and I I'm sure have seen people who've been diagnosed with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder with general anxiety disorder uh, with eating disorder who then subsequently are given the label of uh, borderline personality disorder so yes absolutely they they both share um, anxiety uh, and and difficulty with processing uh, information you mentioned attachment. Could you just say a bit more about attachment and the and the disruption of attachment leading to feelings of abandonment uh, in early life? Yes. Yeah, so that's an absolutely critical thing, isn't it? The the idea that we can attach to a mother figure um, or parental figure uh, in early life is absolutely critical. And I'm sure you remember, Andrew, as I do, uh, 
these these very cruel and wouldn't be allowed now, thank goodness, uh, experiments where baby monkeys uh, were given the choice between being able to cuddle up to something warm and, and, and fluffy or feed. And they would choose the cuddling. That was the higher up in their in their Maslow's pyramid. Um, so attachment, love, affection, feeling safe is absolutely critical. And so if we don't have that at that time in life, then it's very hard to come to terms with that. And we and so a lot of us will who've had that had a happy upbringing will kind of take it as norm that we can we can get on with other people and be accepted by them. But if you've never experienced that, then you probably think that that could never happen to you. I'm not suggesting that's at a conscious level. It's all at the unconscious level, isn't it? But it, it, it leaves a huge gap. So if I have symptoms or if we have symptoms of that lead us towards a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, you, you did hint that actually it's quite helpful to have that diagnosis because there are treatments, which sounds yep. exciting. Yes, there really are. Um, it's it's tough, uh, as I, as I've said. It takes a long time to overcome these deep seated feelings. Um, the good news is that even without treatment, uh, BPD, which affects about two percent of us uh, and tends to emerge in our teenage years, will naturally start to get better uh, in our twenties and thirties. Not that it disappears, but it. it People learn to deal with it and, and, and things do get a little better, even without intervention. Um, we know some things that don't work. So we know that sending people into hospital uh, if they threaten uh, suicide is not productive, that it might stop the short term event. But overall, it doesn't help. And that's why in Somerset, we've set up uh, crisis front rooms for people who who feel that they need some extra support, but we know that it's not good for them to go into uh, into hospital. We know that drugs are generally not useful. If you have coexisting anxiety or depression, then you might need medication for that. But there's no specific drug therapy for BPD. But the talking therapies, and they tend to be longer and more difficult than the, the standard talking therapies, have a very good evidence base behind them. I, I don't know if you want me to go into into that in a bit more detail. Well, I would, please, because talking therapies can cover a whole range, but I think we're talking here particularly about the more in-depth ones, such as DBT and CAT, but could you explain what those are, please? <laughs> I can try as a, as a non-therapist. What, so, what does uh, DBT stand for? DBT is Dialectical Behavioural Therapy. So we're used to CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's kind of using your brain, your rational self to change the way we look at the way we interpret the world. The dialectical bit means um, a discussion, uh, a toing and froing between the, the patient and the therapist. So it's this backwards and forwards. And it's it's more intense than CBT. In fact, I've known patients who need to have CBT in order to get them to a good enough place to then undergo DBT. It's pretty intense and it goes over a lot more than the, the half dozen or eight sessions that CBT does. Um, but that can shift people's way of interpreting the world. And then the other one, the CAT, 
cognitive analytic therapy. So as the name implies, that's using your brain to to analyze what's going on. Uh, and there are a couple of others as well. There's there's family therapy. There's also the, the sort of support that we talk about um, on most of our podcasts, Andrew, uh, is helpful for people. So that sort of self-help, being in nature, uh, things to reduce anxiety, exercise, all of those things that we know help uh, in other ways. Really useful. Interesting. Going back to the DBT and the CAT, they sound, well, they, they sound very effective. I suppose the slight hesitation in my voice is I'm trying to think of it from the point of view of somebody who's in difficulties. Is this a bit daunting? Is Are they going to be hard work? Am I, am I going to, if I go into them, into these therapies, is it going to hurt me? Um, yes. I, 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 and will I be safe? You will be safe, but yes, it it will hurt absolutely. And I I like to think of all talking therapies as being like physiotherapy for the brain. It's it's not just sort of sitting back and saying how do you feel. It's actually making you work, making you change the the patterns of thought that you've you've gone into over the years. And that is is hard work. It's painful in much the same way that physiotherapy for the body your muscles are going to ache and it's going to be painful um, at the start at the start yes. at the start well <laughs> if you if you keep exercising it, it should carry on being uncomfortable if you're if you're pushing yourself every day but that's another podcast maybe so uh, what i'm hearing is that although it's intense it is a question of no pain no gain and the 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 difficulties are probably transient and they're, they're at the start and probably the most most important ingredient we need as well as a, as a good therapist and a safe relationship is the is the courage to engage yes and it's very difficult to think that this this thing that feels overwhelming is something that you can get right by talking um so a lot of people will look for a quick fix understandably whether it's by prescribed medication or whether it's self-medication uh with with drugs or alcohol which a lot of people do as well but the the talking therapies have been studied in just the same way as drug therapies they're they're placebo controlled uh, trials and and these these two in particular and some of the other talking therapies have been shown to be effective in uh, uh, bpd so i i would absolutely urge anyone who thinks that they may have borderline personality disorder or that the people around them may have it. Go to your GP. In in Somerset, we've set up services uh, to make sure that we have enough capacity to help people with it. And you mentioned um, safety. Is it safe? Um, again, I'd refer people to previous podcasts where we've talked about safety plans. So if people are at risk of self-harm, which one in 10 people with BPD are, um, then a safety plan is very important. Uh, you've mentioned going to our GP about this. Are there any other routes in Somerset? Can if I, if I feel that I'd like to be helped with this condition, or somebody that I know wants to be, is there direct access through Open Mental Health? Yes, there is. Um, so, as you know, the talking therapies people can self-refer. Now, mainly that will be uh, CBT, but that's another route in if people either don't want to or have difficulty seeing their GP, then absolutely they can self-refer. 
and there'll be a triage process so they won't just get an automatic course of cbt if the if the person assessing them feels that they need one of these more intensive talking therapies absolutely they'll be able to access it that way and and uh, we've done our best as you know we've called it open mental health in somerset and we've done that for a reason we want to break down the barriers to treatment that traditionally existed and i'm sure not everybody's had a, a completely successful experience but overall the feedback we're getting is that that people do that uh, another route in is to uh, phone Somerset Mindline, where again, there are people who are trained to give advice and can help people find a route into treatment. And we'll put these phone numbers in the in the in the chat in the um, show notes. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember. I'm thinking it's not Somerset Mindline, but the Open Mental Health Somerset is uh, 01823276892, if I remember rightly. But please, before you dial it, let's check it in the. Um, check it in the show notes in case and, yes and you can just google talking therapist somerset and talking therapies is a, is a nationally available scheme with slight regional uh, variations but yes if you just google your local talking therapies uh, almost every area has that direct access indeed and free phone 0800 138 david uh, has kindly jogged our memory so we've got mindline live web chat available every day from 8 8 p.m to 11 p.m or email support at openmentalhealth.org.uk absolutely and we'll put that in the show notes what a fascinating discussion peter so um although there are of your group a some particular personality disorders which may be quite dysfunctional the paranoid or the suspicious ones actually an awful lot of people who are labelled as a borderline personality disorder are people in difficulties, and we can all have difficulties at times. And so the challenge is to recognise that and try and try and grow forwards and recognise that we need to treat ourselves with compassion uh, and find help forwards to... Does it sound too facile, too uh, patronising to say to grow beyond our difficulties, to transcend them and to to grow. Grow out of is not the right term. To, to grow so that we've got something positive from the difficulties. Yes, and I, I wouldn't want in any way to, to underplay the difficulty of, of having BPD and, and how it can make day-to-day uh, -day life really difficult. But it is something that can be used so not growing out of it actually using it as a superpower is is something that some people recognize and increasingly we we recognize this so-called quiet bpd where people people don't have all the manifestations that we've talked about but they still struggle with with these day-to-day -day issues so I, th I think we can always use what we've got and try and grow not out of it maybe into it actually and and use it as a strength it's all part of the human condition and our challenge is that we are here we are privileged to be alive and to be doing life and uh, the challenge each day is to is to make the best of it um i remember meeting somebody on a train once uh, and he said i have three things i want to do each day i i want to uh, learn something i want to make a difference 
Um, and I forgot what the third one was. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have stitched myself up by saying there were three things. <laughs> well, trivia, it, I, I remember you, you're a very, you're a good exemplar of that, Andrew, when we were having our chat before this podcast, um, we we're saying, uh, have you had a good day? And you said, well, I woke up above ground and I was breathing. So that's a good day. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but it's been a really... I, I would stress that this is a really difficult condition to have. It's a very distressing thing to live with. It's difficult for people around as well. And I would urge anyone who is struggling uh, or thinks they might have this condition to make contact with either talking therapists or their GP, because there is help out there. Absolutely. Nobody should suffer in silence. Uh, help is always at hand if needed uh, and if asked for. And the, the biggest step is to have the courage to recognise and to ask. Absolutely. And and I hope that, you know, this is something we've done over several podcasts now where, where we've seen people with, with different struggles who have had that courage and who have managed to transform their lives uh, through facing up to difficulties and and getting through them. We'll put one other resource in the show notes, which is the Somerset Recovery College uh, uh, leaflet on dealing with difficult thoughts and feelings, which has got some great advice. Um, Peter, thank you very much for allowing us to interview you about that this topic today. And um, I think we're drawing to an end, really. I think we are. David has put in the uh, in the chat uh, a question that we asked at the beginning: uh, Is there a new normal? Is there a normal? And I think we've uh, pretty conclusively decided that there isn't. And thank goodness, isn't life better for that variety and the struggles and the difficulties and the the things that some people can uh, consider weird and, and peculiar? Life is much richer for it, I think. We're all unique and different. And uh, listeners, we are all unique and different. You are as well as we are. Thank you so much. Go well. Thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresider, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.